Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you again. He alone is holy. He alone is worthy. There's none like him. And we have the, the blessing of knowing him and being able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Welcome to the Cornerstone Bible Church. We desire to see Christ, our Savior, be lifted up as we have in song and now as we turn to the Word of God. Um, this is uh, that time of year when we, when we have had a week of serving with, as Church of the Week with love in the name of Christ. And um, this year we had 60 people helping out this year. And we ministered to 18 families over that week. And we praise God for the opportunities to show good to those in the name of Christ. And, and as we often do, we have Jeff and his wife Debbie from Love in the Name of Christ with us. You can't miss him. He's back there in the beard. It's real. Don't pull on it. It's real. And uh, we're grateful to have you guys with us. It's always a blessing to uh, fellowship with you the day after Church of the Week is over. So welcome. Well, would you please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You know, there are certain phrases that we, that we say regularly that have become so pervasively accepted that we don't give much thought to what we're actually saying. Uh, for example, we often conclude our time with someone else by saying, have a nice day. And when you say that, have a nice day, are, are you telling them what kind of day to have? Do they really have the power to prevent a day from being something other than nice, whatever that may be? Are you sincere in what you're saying? Or is it just a, a nice way of basically telling someone, you know, move along, move along. Another example is drive safe. Are you afraid that they might drive carelessly? Or, and, and, and you know, and so you're reminding them of, you know, instead of driving carelessly, you should drive safe. And what if, what if, what if someone says, drive safe to you and you reply back, are you trying to say something about how I drive? Why would I want to drive anything other than safe, Right. See, the reason these sayings don't cause us any great concerns or struggles is because we know that they are really just courteous expressions. Have a nice day. It's to be understood not as telling you the type of day that you're to have, but really it's, I hope that your day goes well. Drive safe. It's not a passive-aggressive criticism of someone's driving habits. It's to be understood as, I hope you get to your destination safely. They, they are kind and, you know, in many cases, genuine expressions of goodwill. But they are ultimately ineffective. They neither make my day nice nor guarantee a safe drive. So how you respond to these statements, it's, you know, it's up to you. Most cases, we just, you know, just a simple acknowledgement of the sentiment is enough. Like, oh, thank you. Or, okay, we'll do. So what we must guard against, though, is allowing ourselves to put certain verses 
in the Bible into the same category as these casual statements of goodwill. 2 Timothy 3.16, we're familiar with this verse. It tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired is the Greek word theonoustos, which literally means God breathed. God never wastes His breath. His inspired word, he says, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We're told in 2 Peter 1.3, he says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. And so we should never treat anything God has told us in the Scriptures as irrelevant, dismissible, or ineffective. What he says is what we need to hear. Because it's for our good, and it is ultimately for God's glory. But the good, it comes not from hearing it, but believing it, submitting to it, and obeying it. And this is certainly true of our text this morning. So in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, let's look now, draw our eyes to verse 16. See, when you hear, rejoice always, don't allow your heart to have the same response as, have a nice day. When you hear, pray without ceasing, or in everything, give thanks. Don't let it be the equivalent of drive safe. See, these three statements are three of 684 commands found in the New Testament. And they are to be responded to with equal reverence and equal readiness to obey. Because God does not waste his breath. Putting some of Spurgeon's words my my own way. There is little beauty in blind obedience. God would have you follow Him with your eyes wide open so that you may see the beauty in His Word. God gave all His commands to us for our good. And if we're going to keep them in the spirit in which they are given, then we must come to an understanding of them. And even if we don't fully understand, we're to take God at His Word. And we are to follow Him anyways, but understand that God doesn't want us to be content with blind obedience. He wants us to do the work of digging deep so that we understand His Word, so that we might explain it, we might apply it, and we might rejoice in it. My hope is that this would not simply be another Thanksgiving holiday that 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 comes and and goes, but my hope is that your life would be transformed by these three commands. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. It's not the commands themselves that are going to transform you. It's the God whose will it is to give them to us. He makes obeying them not only possible, but beautiful. 
And these commands reflect God's will for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ supplies the power in Him to obey. And His Spirit produces the joy of Christ in our hearts. See, this, this morning's sermon is about true, deep, lasting joy that is not dependent upon favorable circumstances because it is rooted in God's true nature and in what God has done for you. It's a joy that is characterized not so much by exuberance, but by contentment. You know that you are cared for by a sovereign, wise, and gracious God. In Him, you can choose to no longer be anxious or doubtful about the future, regretful or bitter about the past, but instead you can be content in the moment. And this joyful contentment, it's maintained as you constantly commune with Him and depend upon Him in an attitude of prayer. And the natural result of such God-oriented, Christ-empowered, Spirit-produced contentment is the desire to give thanks in everything. In angry, complaining, or bitter spirit that accuses God of withholding good things from you or interpreted difficult circumstances as evidence that God is unloving or spiteful. See, that can be replaced by what David describes in Psalm 31. He says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. The title of this sermon is Joyful Contentment and Abiding Gratitude. Joyful Contentment and Abiding Gratitude. And I hope to show you that joyful contentment is rooted in God, sought constantly in prayer, and expressed in everything with abiding gratitude. Joyful contentment is rooted in God, sought constantly in prayer, and expressed in everything with abiding gratitude. So before we begin, let's, let's go to God. Let's express our desire for Him to work in us and our commitment to obey Him. Let's pray. Father, we can so easily become numb in our hearts to Your Word, to Your truth. And when that happens, we can easily lose sight of You and, and grow discouraged and forget truths about You, replace them with truths that our heart tells us. These truths never lead us to praise. They usually lead us to complain. Lord, we want to submit ourselves anew and afresh to Your Word today and then ask that You would wrestle with us and with our hearts. Break us of attitudes that do not honor You for who You are, but accuse You of being something other, something less, 
something unworthy of praise, someone who withholds good, someone who gives us reason to despair. Lift our eyes to Christ who is perfect beauty and goodness. Turn our eyes to your all-sufficient word in which you never lie. You tell us what is true and what is true of you and renew our faith in these things so that our hearts will go from a place of darkness and doubt to a place of light and joy and thanksgiving. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Paul first came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. Uh, For three Sabbaths, Paul preached Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah, likely still recovering from the beatings that he had received from his powerful preaching of Christ in Philippi. And as a result, some Jews, several Gentiles, some of the upper class Greek women believed the gospel. Paul likely stayed there for some time. Uh, He was teaching these new converts. And the church was growing. And as the church grew, so did the resentment amongst the Jews. When they'd had enough, they they sought for Paul. When they couldn't find him, they, they brought some of the members of the church before the leaders of the city, accusing them of treason against Caesar. And so to prevent further trouble from harming the believers there, Paul and Silas then left Thessalonica. Now, given the circumstances, Paul was deeply concerned for the believers that he was forced to leave. He was unable to return himself, and so he sent Timothy there. And when Timothy then rejoined Paul in Corinth after going to uh, Thessalonica, he was Paul was relieved. He was encouraged to hear that they were standing firm in the Lord. However, they needed encouragement to keep doing so amidst the ongoing persecution from the Jews that had not stopped since Paul left. Many slanderous things about Paul and Silas and Timothy had been said to try to to bring doubt about their motives, to convince the Christians there that, that these guys don't really care about you. Look, they left. They left you to fend for yourself. Paul addresses many of these things in the letter. and He also takes the opportunity to encourage them to continue to love each other fervently and to work diligently. And he corrects some wrong understandings about the end times. And he also instructs the believers on their conduct together with their fellow Christians which is where we find these three commands. The first thing that Paul calls you to do is to rejoice always in your God. Rejoice always in your God. Paul gives a simple command. just says rejoice. It's in the present tense. It calls for a continual attitude of rejoicing. You know, there, there are indeed many wonderful blessings and truths that we can rejoice in and we, we often do when they happen or when we call them to mind. 
But Paul seems to be calling for more than for us just to rejoice over the many good things in our lives. We know this because he doesn't say rejoice sometimes or rejoice more than you complain. He doesn't even say rejoice often. He modifies his command with the adverb always. Believers are to rejoice always as in at all times. So this this means that you rejoice you're to rejoice when you get a raise at work. You're to rejoice when your work gets recognized. Rejoice when you find a godly spouse. Rejoice when you have a healthy child. Rejoice when you find something that you thought was lost. Rejoice when you buy a house. See, this kind of thankfulness and, and gratitude for these good things it pleases God. We, we all know, though, that it's easy to be thankful for the good things. And God does indeed give us plenty to rejoice over and to be thankful for. He lavishes us with grace and mercy abundantly every day. But what is our first thought in times of trouble? Is, is it joy? Or is it grumbling? And asking, why now, God? Or, why this, God? W- would God actually expect you to rejoice when you lose your job? To rejoice when you get overlooked at work? Again? To rejoice when you are single but you want to be married. To rejoice when you miscarry at 20 weeks or when your child is born with some birth defect. Would God really expect you to rejoice when you lose something or someone valuable and important to you? Would God expect you really to rejoice because you lose your home? See, to rejoice at such times, it actually seems it seems kind of warped, kind of disconnected from reality. Like you're weird. Does God really expect me to rejoice when there is nothing good about my circumstances? How is this even possible? Well, let's look at the flow of thought leading up to these verses. Turn back to verse 14. He says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Okay, so Paul, he is urging them to be spiritually ready to respond in very Christ-like ways to people who are needy and difficult and, and, and draining. Right? The unruly, they're challenging you. The faint-hearted, they're leaning on you. The weak, they're depleting you. But you're called to encourage and to help and to be patient and not to return evil for evil. In other words, you're called to have spiritual resources that are reliable and sufficient and effective and powerful when others 
are unruly and faint-hearted and weak and mean-spirited. And right after that, Paul's answer to this situation, he says, Rejoice always. I think we can presume that Paul is not commanding that they rejoice primarily in the circumstances. Because the people that are around them are unruly and faint-hearted and weak and antagonistic. These are things that would make an ordinary person angry and sullen and discouraged. But you can rejoice. You can rejoice, Christian, because you have your hope and your trust somewhere else. So let's, let me give you a biblical picture of what we're talking about here. We're going to come back here, but turn to Psalm 1. The opening of the Psalms. Here's how it begins. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. So the reason why you can always bear the fruit of joy and not wither in, in difficult seasons or around difficult people is because you are like a tree planted firmly near a stream whose roots are drawing up spiritual nourishment from a source that cannot be depleted. The river of God and of His Word. And because God is who He is and He never changes and is always the same, you, Christian, always have reason to rejoice in Him. Whatever the circumstances you face, those who are in Christ, whose God is the Lord, they can rejoice always because God is always who He is. And His promises are always true. Okay, but who is God that we can rejoice always? Who is this God? Well, let's, let's do a, a quick run through theology proper. Well, first and foremost, we can rejoice always because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. To be sovereign means that God retains all rights and exercises supreme and ultimate authority over everyone and over everything. His sovereignty extends over all people. Those who bless you. Those who curse you. Those who give to you. Those who take from you. Those who love you. Those who hate you. Those who help you. Those who hurt you. Those who build you up. Those who tear you down. Rulers, neighbors, parents, children, friends, enemies, relatives, not to be confused, strangers, everyone in between. His sovereignty extends over everything. The weather, the lottery, nations, successes, 
failures, earthquakes, the stock market, elections, lightning, falling leaves, ocean currents, the stars and far-off galaxies, the molecules that make up your body. And we know this because God tells us in His Word. You can follow along if you want. We're going to skip along and some of these may be important for you to have your eyes on. Look at Psalm 103, verse 19. I'll give you the amount of time it takes for me to turn there. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Look at Isaiah 14. Verse 24. Isaiah 14. Verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. Turn back to Psalm 135. Verses 6 and 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and all in all the deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Who makes lightnings for the rain? Who brings forth the wind from his treasuries? And the answer is God, of course. Here's what Paul calls God in 1 Timothy 6.15. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, the disciples, they witness Christ's sovereignty over and again, but especially... In this one instance, when it was over nature, it's in Mark chapter 4. There arose this fierce gale of wind. The waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat, it was already filling up. And Jesus Himself was asleep in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And so they woke Him. They said to Him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And He got up and He rebuked the wind. And He said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Okay, why are you afraid? And I think we can also insert there, why are you not content? Why are you angry? Why are you sullen? Why are you ungrateful? How is it that you have, and here's the key, how is it that you have no faith? That's a clue to what the real problem is. They became very much afraid. They said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? See, God is sovereign over all things. He has the authority, power, and the wisdom to do all that He pleases. Every part of God's creation, all places, objects, creatures, people, even the devil is under God's sovereign will and rule. Every event and every situation is under God's sovereign rule. The good and the bad. The blessed, the tragic. God tells us in Isaiah 45, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. 
And so you can rejoice always because there is nothing that happens in your life that is outside of God's control or isn't according to God's predetermined plan for you. But God's sovereignty alone is not the reason for you to rejoice always. Would you rejoice always if God was a sovereign, miserly ogre? No, of course you wouldn't. But you can also rejoice always because your God, who is sovereign, is also good. God is good. Jesus put it simply in Luke 18. No one is good except God alone. To say that God is good, it means that He always acts in accordance to what is right and true and good. Goodness is a part of God's nature. He cannot act contrary to His nature. Holiness and righteousness are a part of God's nature. He can't do anything that is unholy or unrighteous. Everything that God does is good and everything that He allows is for good. God is the standard of all that is good. He has no evil in Him. His intentions and His motivations are always good. He always does right and the outcome of His plan is always good. You know, everything that happened in Joseph's life, you can read about it beginning in chapter 35 of Genesis for yourself. Everything that happened, being sold into slavery by his brothers, being a servant in Potiphar's house where he was falsely accused of rape and then imprisoned, to accurately interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and then Pharaoh himself, to being raised to the second in authority over Egypt and then guiding that nation through seven years of famine. It was all orchestrated by God. And as he was able then to tell his brothers at the end of it all, his brothers who had sold him in the slavery, he said, as for you, you meant it for evil. Evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Over all the events of his lifetime, Joseph learned that he must not interpret God's character according to his circumstances. Instead, he must view his circumstances in light of God's goodness. The circumstances you are in, they might not be good. But you can trust that your good God is using them for good. There's nothing unpleasant, evil, or dark in him. His goodness that extends from his nature out to everything that he does. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good and you do good. And as God is sovereignly at work for good, the New Testament equivalent of Joseph's words to his brothers in Genesis 50, the New Testament equivalent is Romans 8.28. And, and we can know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. See, because God is good and is working all things for your good, you can rejoice always, even when things happen in and of themselves that are not good. Even though you can't comprehend how, you can trust that God is already working things together for your good and will bring them about according to His time, not yours. Thirdly, you can rejoice always because in addition to being sovereign and good, God is loving. He freely and perfectly acts 
for the good and the well-being of others. John says it as simply as that can be said in 1 John 4, 8. He says, God is love. God is the essence of what love is. Such a statement, it can, of course, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. God is love, therefore, accept this thing that's sinful about me because God is love. But if you were to ask God what it means, I think this is what he would say. It means I will always be patient with you and do good to you. I will never be envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, or self-seeking, or act out of those types of desires. I will never be angry or resentful or delight in evil. That is what love is. Because this is who I am. I'm love. And the fullest demonstration of God's love is what He did in making salvation possible for sinners like you and me. He he didn't even spare His Son. But in love, He sent Him to bear the penalty for us. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love moved Him to redeem us through the giving of His most beloved Son, that same love assures us also that He will never let us go. In Romans 8, Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And his, ex, his expectation is that we would love others then in the same way. He says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. See, you can rejoice always, Christian, because love is at the core of who God is. And everything He does towards you is loving. Another reason that you can rejoice always is because God is wise. God is wise. Wisdom is knowing what the greatest goal is in any situation and the, and what the best way is to achieve it. Paul concludes the book of Romans with a doxology. And in the final phrases here, this is the, the final phrases of, of this incredible work called the book of Romans, right? Here's what he emphasizes. He emphasizes one attribute about God, namely his wisdom. He says, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. And he means by this, he says, to God alone who is wise be glory forevermore. The one and only God is wise. He is gloriously wise. He is infinitely wise. Wise. Paul describes the extent of God's wisdom in Romans 11. Turn there. The book of Romans chapter 11. Can you beat me there? Romans 11. Read with me verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord 
Or who can become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. See, God's wisdom is so deep. No one can counsel him. It's so broad and expansive that his wisdom, it cannot be increased. Not because it has limits, but because every conceivable wisdom that exists is already his. And you can rejoice always because with infinite wisdom and with unfathomable love, God is sovereignly causing all things to work together for your good. And you can trust that this is what God is doing because, fifthly, God is faithful. God is faithful. He's perfectly reliable. He never deviates in His response to what He has, to what he has promised. Psalm 119, it says, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth And it stands. God equates faithfulness with His Word. He he speaks never-ending truth. If God spoke something a thousand years ago, it still stands today. And it will still stand till the end of time and beyond. He's faithful to His Word because His Word is an expression of His character. The promises He made, they still hold true because He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It can be difficult to trust God at first, right? But the more you study God's Word, you begin to see a pattern. God never changes. He never lies. He says in Numbers 23, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent or change. He has said, and will He not do it? Or has He spoken, and will He not make it good? All throughout Scripture, we can see that God has never failed. He was always true to His Word as He worked in the lives of the Israelites. And when He said that He would do something, He did it. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. So you build your trust on God's proven character. You can trust that God will be true to Himself. He will never cease acting like God. He will never cease being sovereign and good and loving and wise because God is faithful and you can rejoice always in this. And in addition to all the other reasons, you can also rejoice because God is gracious. God is gracious. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God responded by putting putting Moses in a cleft in the rock and then by passing by him while exclaiming, look at Exodus 34. That was an easy one to find. Exodus 34, verse 6. Look at what he says about himself. Exodus 34, verse 6. He says this, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The first two words out of God's own mouth after proclaiming His name is compassionate and gracious. We might have said something like, the Lord, holy and demanding. The Lord, disappointed and frustrated with us. But these are our words. They're not God's. His words are compassionate and gracious. And He has demonstrated His compassion and His grace over and over and over. A constant refrain of the psalmist is, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 116, verse 5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. God demonstrates that He is gracious by choosing to bless us rather than to curse us as our sins deserve. His grace is His kindness to the undeserving. Graciousness is not something that He puts on or takes off when He decides to show us grace and depending on the the situation he is always gracious he does not dis- he he does not decide to show us grace he's always gracious it's just who he is because he is gracious he has demonstrated grace in everything that he does jesus whom john says was full of He testified that this was his heart throughout his life. And then he proved it when he went to the cross to be forsaken of God in our place. God is gracious and that is why we can always rejoice. Here's something Dane Ortland said in his book Gentle and Lowly that I I think is worth considering. He says this, quote, Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards Him in the wake of it. So you already are thinking so ill of God that you think sin is a better option than what God offers you. That's where the sin begins. God is stingy. God is withholding. God is not, doesn't want you to have good. So you've got to go find it yourself. Is the reason why you don't rejoice always? Is it because you won't? Though you would never say it outright, you think that God is a fraud. And even perhaps a liar. God's not in control. And if He is, then He's not good. He's not loving. He's not wise. He's not faithful. He's not gracious. God has withheld good things from me because I don't have things that I want and I think I need to be happy. God has not caused all things to work to good for, together for good in my life. If that were true, then I'd be happy. And I'm not happy, so God is not good. In place of rejoicing always, you are sullen and you are discouraged always. If you were a tree, your branches are barren 
and your leaves are withered. And you won't ever prosper in anything until you repent of your false accusations of God. The truth is God is who He says He is. He is sovereign. He is good. He is loving. And He is wise, faithful, and gracious. He never changes. He is always the same. And for this reason, you always have reason to rejoice in Him, whatever the circumstances you face. There's two more commands. And they're just as important as this one. But this is the big one. But to hear these other two commands, you need to come back tonight. We're going to have a praise service tonight. A time to give thanks to God in everything. For He is good. So come back tonight, I urge you. We're going to sing His praises and we're going to finish up this message on why He... (laughs) I can't even remember the first things I said. Joyful contentment and abiding gratitude. That's what we're going to come back and hear about tonight. And you need to hear it, especially if I've described you in the last moments. I would never accuse God. Are you not rejoicing always? Are you more angry and sullen and discontented than you are grateful? You're accusing God of not being who He says He is and you need to repent. But there's more. Come back tonight and be encouraged to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are glorious truths. They are not difficult. They seem difficult to us only because we don't believe what you say about yourself. If we believe everything that you say, then we would indeed rejoice always. We would pray without ceasing. We would give thanks in everything. Christians should be the most contented and joyful people on the planet. And we should desire that. That's why I pray that... that that these three commands would transform our lives. We ask this help in God's name. Amen.